Hello, everybody. You're tuned in to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and we're joined today by Alex Lieberman, founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. Morning Brew is a media company bringing informative and digestible daily business news straight to the inboxes of over two and a half million subscribers. What started out as a business newsletter by a couple of students at the University of Michigan in 2015 has since grown into a full-fledged media business with several newsletters, podcasts, and much more. In 2020, Morning Brew was acquired by Business Insider for about $75 million. We had a blast getting to know Alex and hearing about the incredible story of how we built Morning Brew along with his co-founder, Austin. Here we go. First of all, thank you for being here with us. I know it's a Saturday afternoon out in the East Coast. Uh, and uh, no worries, you spending some time with us. Uh, but we'd love to learn a little bit more about obviously you and you know what life was like when you were younger. I mean, where did you grow up? And you know, tell us a little bit about your environment, your family life, etc. Yeah, I grew up in um, in the suburbs of New Jersey, like forty five minutes outside of New York City. I grew up in a finance family, so my mom, dad, grandpa all worked in financial services. Um, so I grew up going to New York City a lot. Grew up going to Broadway shows a lot. My mom, dad, grandpa all worked in sales and trading. Also, so not only did they work in finance, they worked in a specific corner of finance. Um, I grew up playing sports, uh, so you know, soccer, uh, skiing, golf, baseball throughout various ages ages of life were kind of my thing. Tennis also went to a small private school um, from third grade on. So basically third grade until uh, 12th grade of high school, went to small school in, um, in like the middle of New Jersey, had a graduating class of like 120 people. And uh, that was definitely a formative experience for me, uh, both in good ways and bad ways. Uh, you know, I. What were some learned, of the good ways, and what were some of the bad ways? Yeah, so um, the good parts of you know the the private high school I went to was had a lot of smart people, a uh, ton of work. So I, I think I was very well prepared to do well in college. I found my my high school workload to be far greater than my. Uh, college workload. So Michigan, I found actually easier than high school. Um, sports were super competitive. So playing soccer, playing golf and skiing at school, all very competitive, uh, which I thought was great. Also socially, I definitely found it difficult. I think, uh, as a function of one being one of the younger people in my grade, um, uh, most people were a year older than me. I think just that I found to be difficult. People were just more mentally mature than I was as a function of age. And also because everyone was coming from different parts of New Jersey, New Jersey to uh, this school, I think it was also tough socially because you know when when someone was having a party, it wasn't just like you know you walked to to Andy's house. It was like you your family drives you uh, an hour to Andy's house. So that that created a tough dynamic. It was a, a function of not having quite the the same mental maturity as my classmates, honestly being bullied a little bit, um, 
and uh, and also it just being harder. There there being more moving parts to get together with anyone. Uh, so that that was my you know early educational experience. Were you were you a good student? Like, did you do well in school? I was a fine student. I wasn't a great student. Uh, I was probably a BB plus student in high school. Um, I think something that was hard for me is not only obviously was it like a difficult and competitive school, but I um, I was a really bad procrastinator, and in high school or just at any sort of school and before college, your time is very much blocked where it's like 8.30 in the morning until 5 o'clock until you go home, your schedule is dictated for you. And if you played sports, you wouldn't get home until 7 o'clock. Right. And so that, what that meant for me is I really could only do work between 7 and you know when I went to sleep at 10 o'clock. I, I found that to be really difficult because as someone who procrastinated, it, it, my way of working and thinking – I couldn't just like sit down and focus for three hours straight. It just didn't work for me. And so I think I just didn't do a good enough job of being prepared mm-hmm. in high school because I couldn't find I couldn't find the it in me or the willpower to just have complete and utter focus for the the one piece of time in my day that was just my time. In college, it was less of an issue because you know I had two or three classes a day. The vast majority of the day is time that you can dictate for yourself, right? And also, I think I just generally got a little bit more mature and was able to focus a little bit longer than high school. So I was actually a far better student in college than I was in high school. Alex, you talked about how your dad and grandpa were all in these finance and sales type roles. Um, you know, is that the path that you thought that you would go down? Uh, you know, in your early days in high school and even in college? Yeah, 100%. I thought that I was going to be a trader. <clears throat> um, and it's not because I necessarily thought that I that is what I would love to do. But uh, it was just family was the most important thing to me. I saw my family members doing this. They were my role models. And Therefore, that meant I needed to do it to do it because I viewed them as being really successful. And if they were really successful working in financial services, it mean it meant that I was going to be really successful working in financial services. So growing up, I literally had it written on my whiteboard, be the best trader in the world. I didn't I don't think I even knew or not I think I know I didn't know what that actually meant. I had no idea if I'd actually be good at it. Mm-hmm. But that was my North Star because of just, you know, being aspirational to be like my role models. And so everything I did in college, with internships, what I studied was trying to put me on that course of being in sales and trading. And it's really funny, you know, now in retrospect, how I definitely wasn't the right fit for sales and trading, like like for a lot of reasons. One is I don't think I had this skill set that would make someone exceptional at, at trading. And I also don't think I enjoyed the skill set nearly enough to become exceptional. It's like, it's the balance of you either need to have like great innate properties to be really good at something, or you need to just love it so much you're going to outwork everyone to get great at it. And I had neither of those, right? So um, even what if I wasn't doing qualities money, like that, you notice that you're like, this is what it takes to be a good trader. Um, I think 
being very at least in the product that I was trading, uh, being very quantitative. Um, fit, like when you fit when people think they think in different forms. Like some people think in analogies, some people think in pictures, some people think in examples, other people think in numbers. If your default brain is numbers, that generally was a good thing. I think um, yeah. another thing was just being really good at, at thinking um, about like third, fourth, fifth order effects uh, when making a decision. So like literally playing 3D chess at all times and as much as like we all want to be great at that because it sounds really awesome and sexy. I think at least at the time that wasn't my innate ability mm-hmm. is I was way more um, spontaneous and creative in nature. And so at the time, like my decision-making I think was sometimes blinded by excitement of trying new things, uh, which isn't necessarily the best formula when every decision you make as a trader should be super calculated thinking about what is the trade-off of every single thing I'm doing now and based on my action what are the the third fourth fifth order effects that can happen from my action again it's not a unlearnable skill but that wasn't my that wasn't my default brain mm-hmm. so when you were in college um, you know did you have any other internships did you have any other experiences what were you doing during your time there? Uh, that helped you mature, that helped you almost decide perhaps, you know, what track you really wanted to go down? Yeah, I think there's a few things in terms of like the, the, you know, the maturation of your brain. I think sometimes it's just, it's biological, just like as you get older, you mature. I think the second is it's life events that can create maturation. And I think the third is like, exposure to new and different things. And I probably had some combination of all of those. I think I generally just matured as I got older. Um, and I, I got a better sense of myself. I became more confident. Uh, I wasn't the youngest one uh, of the entire group of people. I think that was one one part of it. I think the second part of it, you know, in terms of life events, my dad passing away uh, a week before my junior year of college, completely unexpectedly, I think absolutely accelerated my way of thinking um where it went from like alex is just kind of taking care of himself living life not really worrying about every anything not having kind of any perspective on what <laughs> like what life is what happens beyond a week uh from from now it really evolved to i need to take care of my family and i think i put a lot of that pressure on myself like this, this wasn't a pressure put on me by my family, um, but I put the pressure on myself. Where like you know the the breadwinner of the family dropped dead, my mom had retired, and all I could visualize was money out and no money in. Mm-hmm. And so it was like from that point in time, all I could think about, not literally, like not always consciously, but always subconsciously, I need to find a, figure out a way to take care of my whole family and never have to worry about them you know, not having the money they need to, to live. That was literally how, you know, my brain evolved. Um, Alex, was that in, in any way or in any way s- stressful? I mean, did that, you know, take a lot out of you to constantly be in a position? I know you said not constantly, but like, you know, we just to use the word constantly where you were in a position at many times where 
you had to be focused on making money. Perhaps you had to sacrifice time with friends or time at school or activities or whatever the case may be to go out and earn income. Right. I mean, or, or was it better for you? Was it the perspective that you needed to get ahead? Yeah, I think, um, I definitely put a lot of pressure on myself for sure. And I think, you know, the, what was the positive part of it? The positive part of it was that it focused me on like, what were the most important things that I needed to do to get to my end destination End destination being take care of my family. I think the negative part of all of it is as a function of my, you know, my dad passing and just kind of, I think the anxiety created around this. I think I got really good at pushing my emotions down into my body where like, you know, I, I kind of have always been a relatively unemotional person. Um, and I think that's just a function of a, a number of things. One is growing up in a wall street household. The second is I think the way that society, uh, just consciously or subconsciously, you know, places pressure on different genders to, to share emotions in different ways. But I think the third was like my way of dealing with loss um, and dealing with the pressure that I applied to myself around loss was not feeling the emotion was like pushing it all into my body. So I didn't have to deal with it at the time. And I think in a lot of ways, it was a great, a great coping mechanism in the sense that like I was kind of unfuckable with, uh, so to speak. But I think in other ways it wasn't productive because I think it, it put into my body a lot of feelings, uh, and a lot of thoughts that I've had to just reconcile over the years and try really hard to understand even when they're not obvious. Right. You talk about, you know, or you, earlier you talked about how you were, you know, bullied when you were growing up a little bit, you know, would you say that you were at all a confident kid or have you become more confident over the years through the muscle and through the success that you've built? Uh, I've definitely become more confident. Uh, Alex Lieberman between fourth grade and 12th grade was not a confident person. I was incredibly self-conscious with everything from my intelligence to my popularity to, you know, if girls found me attractive, like all of those things I was extremely self-conscious about. Um, in college, I definitely became more confident. I think one was because I found a group of friends that I actually felt, you know, like a part of, I felt accepted by. I think that was a big reason. I think also, again, with age, I just matured. Um, and and then obviously, you know, a little bit later, like as I got into the business school at Michigan, as I um, did well in the business school, like my last two years of Michigan after my dad passed were my, my best years in terms of grades. And then got the, my dream job, which was in sales and trading. Then I ended up going to work on Morning Brew. I think there were a lot of these like external validators right. that forced confidence upon me. And I actually think in some ways it's a good thing again and a bad thing. It's a good thing because I found confidence, but I actually think because of my early years when I didn't feel um, validated or appreciated like in high school, I think it has forced me unknowingly to need validation externally in order to feel satisfied and fulfilled. And I actually think that's not a healthy thing. I think for me, finding ways to feel fulfilled kind of intrinsically with my own accomplishments and with my own sense of self, 
I think is a really important thing for me as I just develop as, you know, as uh, an adult over right. time. You know, and that's very interesting. And I do think that confidence and, uh, you know, the ability to not necessarily seek external validation, it comes with time, right? It's you need a few reps in your life, in your career to get to the point that you say, okay, I think I know what I'm doing, for example, but I, it's also nice to hear it from the outside world because especially when it comes to business, right? I remember, Pat, remember when we talked to Khalees who sings the song Milkshake, she was a musician at one point and then at another point in her life, she became a chef. And she talked to us about when she was a musician, she would write songs for herself, not necessarily caring whether or not somebody was going to like them. I mean, as an artist, she just wanted to fulfill her own like soul and her own mind and her own body, etc. But as a chef, when you're serving others, you want them to be, you know, enjoying the food, right? And I think that, that you need external validation, right? So I think it's a balance. I think that over time, when you do get that external validation, you become more confident, you know, internally that, okay, what I am doing is right. I don't no longer need to seek out that validation, right? So I really enjoy, and I really love that you said that because I think a lot of people think that successful people are always confident that they were always right. And they were always winning. But a lot of the times those people had to experience loss. They had to experience failure. They had to experience other people telling them what to do, how to do it, if they're doing it right to then get to the point of saying, you know what, I'm actually confident in myself now. You know, I can, I can do this. Uh, so thank you for saying And, and by the and by the way, like even though I have been more confident as a founder than I was earlier in life, I would actually say being a founder is one of the most uh, anxiety-provoking and self-conscious experiences right. I've had in my life. Like, you know, I've felt like an imposter. I've felt alone. I've felt inadequate so many times in being a founder. And obviously on the outside, no one would have any sense of that as they just attach, you know, my identity, my co-founder's identity to our company. And if our company's growing, it means we must be doing great. But like that is actually, you know, a complete, I would say, misperception of how founders actually feel as they're growing, even if their business is successful. So you talk about graduating college from Michigan the last two years after your dad passed. You mentioned were in terms of your grades and everything were some of the better years. Um, Obviously, you didn't end up, you know, being a trader. Uh, but what are some of the takeaways from that experience uh, that you had after college? From from my experience in sales and trading for like the year that I was there, you're saying? Yep. Yeah. So I, I think there's a few things. One is I just very, I, I think I've had like another revelation around this recently, but that was the first time I also think I started to realize that like, if you don't really enjoy what you're working on, or you don't enjoy the journey of what you're working on, it is going to be pretty impossible impossible for you to be exceptional um, because you're going to always get outworked by people who genuinely enjoy what they're doing. And so I was surrounded by a lot of people who genuinely enjoyed being traders and loved coming into work at 6.30, leaving at 8.30, and staring at you know five computer monitors and 40 screens all day. And I just didn't love it. And if I didn't love it, I was never going to be the best at it. So I think that was one learning. The second learning, which has been foundational to everything in building a business, is thinking about decisions in terms of trade-off. I mean, over time, what I've just realized is 
there are so few right and wrong decisions. Most decisions are not right or wrong. Uh, most points of view are not right or wrong. Gen- generally, when you talk to really smart people around the same decision, you, you can be convinced either way that uh, even if they have opposing viewpoints on the decision that should be made, you could find both of those viewpoints really compelling and both of those viewpoints leading to a good decision. And so what I've learned over time is like everything is about trade-off. It's not about what's right or wrong. It's about what do you give up by making a certain decision and what are the potential collateral effects of the decision you're making. And I think what that has allowed me to do is come to terms with being confident in the decisions I'm making, but also being flexible and malleable to understanding other people's viewpoints around a different decision that could be made because none of us know if we're right or wrong until, you know, three months or six months in the future when we look at what was the quality of the decision we made. Right. And and we always, I feel like you always think it's like a linear thing. Like if you have this kind of result or goal in mind that, you know, it, you have to make all the right decisions to get there. But like you said, it's not right or wrong and people can make different decisions along the way and still end up in that same situation or same place. Right. It, and, yeah. And, yeah, and, and and by the way, I think people also evaluate de- decisions in the wrong way. Um, people people look at decisions and they see the outcome from the decision, and that that is what they judge as them making a right or wrong decision. But that's like the complete wrong way to look at decision making, right? The the decision is about the the logic and the thought process that went into making the decision. And so, you know, just to give an a- actual example, you could have two investors. Um, both of them invest in in you know small cap stocks. They're equity investors. They both invest in small cap stocks. One stock in a in a year time horizon four x's. The other stock is cut in uh, cut by uh, cut to a quarter of its value in that same year. Most people would look at it and be like, investor one, the first one who four x the stock, they are the better decision maker. Second one, clearly the worst decision maker. That may not be the case at all. For all you know, the person who invested in the stock Forex, they they you know licked their fingers, stuck it in the air, and picked a stock. And the second person actually put a ton of thought process in and something completely unforeseeable, like right. you know, uh, senior leadership at the company having a fraud scandal is what caused the stock to deplete. The, the the second person actually is probably the better thinker around making decisions, but most people would not think about it that way. Right, and and because they're like maybe they're generalizing or just like saying like this person made maybe one decision that didn't work out the way they wanted it to, and they're probably not a great decision maker in general or something. You know, it's like it's just like a series of yeah. things. That everyone people, everyone's decisions can play out in different ways, and who's the who's the judge of that really besides yourself? I guess. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, well, it's it's just about the rigor. It's about the rigor around when you make a decision, how much thought went into it, what were the trade-offs, did you consider the trade-offs and all of those things? And people don't think about what was the process around the decision. They more think about the output. And I think just society has um has conditioned us mm-hmm. to look for uh babe roots in in life, people who point to the outfield and say this is where it's going. And like people are attracted by the people who make big calls and then the calls pay off. And then people say that group person's a great decision maker. But one, 
people never know when when being excited by these people if those people actually had great logic when they were making a decision or they were just like I'm going to make a big call. And two, people always forget the 50 other potentially equally as bad calls that the person made that just are forgotten because they never get called out again. Right. So you mentioned um, you know, not really enjoying or loving what you were doing. Did you have an idea of what you love to do at the time like what like or just you're still trying to figure out something else? No, I didn't know what I loved to do. Um, at the time, I was I was doing morning brew on the side, and so I knew I loved that. Right, I knew that I loved going home from work at eight o'clock, spending three or four hours on the brew, building this new thing that was exhilar- exhilarating to me. So I knew I loved like the creativity and the newness of this project and the feeling of ownership over it. But aside from that, I had no idea what I loved. And and to be totally honest with you, I'm still trying to figure it out. Yeah. Like I think I have a better sense of what I what I love. Like I think I love being creative. I love constantly learning. Uh, you know, if you if you could just let me spend all day doing a combination of reading a few different books that, you know, satiate different desires, listening to a few great podcasts. And then using that as like jet fuel for me to think of new and creative ideas. Mm. I love that activity. Yeah. But beyond that, I don't know what else I truly love yet. I, I agree. And I love it too. And it's, it's, it's something interesting. I was talking about yesterday. Um, you know, it's like you can be so consumed by so much like new stuff, just knowledge and learning and learning and learning uh, to the point where it makes it harder and harder to uh, be like, you know, pinpoint a passion or something that you love. It's kind of like you learn a lot of things and I don't know if it's the kind of ignorance is built bliss argument or like, you know, naivete versus knowing, I don't know, a lot about the way things work or life works, but it's just, it makes, I, I don't know. Sometimes it's like, it, I feel like it's easier to say, I love this when you don't have as much knowledge about it. Otherwise you kind of talk yourself out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, for sure. And I also think, again, it comes down to people think that one, you're supposed to know, what you love or that yeah. you look you look at social media it seems like people have a ton of confidence about the things they love or they look at founders and they're like oh yeah founders love the companies they're building a- and what i'd say is i think very few people actually have clarity around what they love they either have convinced themselves that they love it but don't realize that they what the thing they think they love isn't what they actually love I mean, that's that, you know, that's part of the journey of life, right? It's just like figuring out what is it that actually gives you energy. Um, and, and I think that's the thing also is like, yes, I love building morning brew, but I think it's important to also distinguish what is it that I love about it? Do I love media? Do I love thinking about the creator economy? Do I love building teams? Do I love creating something new that the world has never seen before? And I think a lot of founders spend a lot of their time trying to figure out of all these moving variables in your business, what is the thing about it that you actually love? Right. So Alex, you talked about doing the brew while you were at the trading job. What was Morning Brew when it first began? And what was even the idea that led to it? Talk to us about the super early, you know, the inception of, um, you know, the brew. Yeah, so the the way the business started was I was in my senior year at Michigan, had accepted my job offer to Morgan Stanley, had a lot of free time, wanted to help students prep for job interviews as a way to just keep myself busy. 
in in those conversations with students, I would always do a mock interview. First question I would always ask in the mock interview is, how do you keep up with the business world? Every single student had the same exact answer. It was, you know, I read the Wall Street Journal. I read it because I feel like I have to because my parents told me to and it's a prerequisite, blah, 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 blah. And at some point after hearing this over and over, um, I was like, this is crazy. These ki- These kids, like they are going to spend careers in business, yet they don't have content that story tells the business world. I started writing a daily business roundup. It was called Market Corner. It was done in a PDF, uh, attached it to an email. There was no website. I was managing a listserv, which was marketcorner at umich.edu. I would add in people's email addresses to the listserv as they asked me to do so. And basically, after a month or two of doing it, there were several hundred people signed up for this daily PDF. That's when I was like, okay, there's clearly some appetite because this is impossible to sign up for. The writing is fine, not great. The product looks like shit. There's a bear and a bull fighting as the logo with the watermark going across. Like this isn't a great product, yet people are still looking for it. That's interesting. Yeah. End up connecting with this guy named Austin Reef who emailed me saying he wanted to help out with the product. He ended up becoming my co-founder, still is my co-founder. And, he was also um, a student at Michigan. Uh, he was also at Michigan. He's two years younger, so I was a senior at the time. He was a sophomore at the time. We actually were both in the same fraternity. Didn't realize it um, <laughs> until we met each other, and um, and so together we we transitioned it from Market Corner to Morning Brew, um, which launched as like an a proper email newsletter in March of 2015. Had an actual website that people could put their email address into. And, um, that was, that was the genesis of the business. And then when I was at Morgan Stanley, uh, you know, I, it was still just a newsletter. We still hadn't made any money. I uh, I think when I left Morgan Stanley, it was, it had 35, 40,000 subscribers. So bigger, not huge. So like, I don't think we, when I quit, we didn't actually know, like, can this at this size right now make enough money to sustain our livelihood? We just were like, yeah. it's it has pretty good size. Austin at the time, this was in 2016 when I was about to quit Morgan Stanley. Austin at the time was a senior at Michigan. He was finishing school. He wasn't going to drop out of school. But we met up one weekend in, um, in Union Square in New York City uh, at Pete's Tavern on... Uh, Irving Place. Basically, there, you know, he had flown in from Michigan. Uh, I had, I was living in the city at the time. We discussed, are we going to do this full thing full time or not? Because we knew that there was a, a natural fork that was coming. It was either do this full time or don't do this full time. And if we don't do full time, it's never going to really be anything. And and up until that point, uh, kind of before we talk about how that meeting ended up going and what you guys ended up doing, up until that time, while you were at Morgan Stanley and while he was still, you know, a senior and kind of finishing up his senior year, was it still you guys just kind of on your free time, like you know, figuring out what are we even putting in the newsletters? Like you guys were writing the content yourselves, I'm, I assume. Like you guys were curating all this content. Uh, how did you guys? How was that dynamic even before you decided, you, or you wanted to quit and do this full time? Like up until that point. Yeah. So, um, at the time it was, I was very much like focused on the content. Um, Austin was focused on, on growth and also just like managing our finances. And 
it wasn't just him, him and I at that point because when I joined Morgan Stanley, they made it very clear that I couldn't write the newsletter anymore for compliance reasons. And so basically we had a group of college students who just wanted to get their voice and content in front of the world. They were writing the newsletter and they basically had rotations. It was like six to 10 students. They each had their days that they would write stories. And then we had this one guy who we went to Michigan with who became the the managing editor who basically just corralled the troops to write the newsletter every day. And then he would edit it for tone and for grammar. And, um, and he was still a student at Michigan. So basically the whole writing operation had been outsourced to students students in general um, who were doing this for no money just to, for experience and just to they, get any yeah, out there they were yeah. it was for no money they were doing it for experience that the guy who was the editor um had a small amount of equity in the business and yeah. they were just motivated by kind of this growing thing this startup that was exciting and having tens of thousands of people read their content were, were newsletters a big thing in 2015 I, I mean we obviously know how big they are now and every single person has a newsletter. Uh, yep. It's like a podcast. I mean, I, I think, yeah, it's definitely the new podcast, which is interesting. I feel like more people had podcasts early on than the newsletters, but now everybody has a newsletter. But what was the newsletter landscape, you know, five, six years ago at this point? Yeah. So um, at the time, really, the only newsletters we really knew about were the Skim. The Hustle had just launched. They started as an event a conference and then yep. kind of pivoted into a newsletter. Finimize, which was founded around the same time in uh, London. Yeah. And then the only other thing we knew at the time was like Cheddar, which was just starting up. Um, yep. Other than that, newsletters were not big. People did not know like newsletter companies to be companies that made a lot of money. I think newsletters were generally considered like an old technology, kind of unsexy. There was only one big newsletter business prior to the skim, which was um, Daily Candy. And it kind of exploded. People thought email was going to be dead by 2016. People were like, yeah. I feel like no one was even thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. So like email was definitely not considered like a sexy thing at all. Yeah. Uh, but Austin and I defaulted to email because we wanted something that was a behavior that people already had. Um, meaning like we didn't want to create a website because I, uh, getting people to go back to that website every single day didn't make sense to us versus getting someone to opt into an email. They already are using email. And then each day the newsletters pushed to them as a daily habit. And it was also a function of money. Like we were in college, we didn't have all this money to spend on a business. And so, um, and so like a newsletter, our first newsletter, it, uh, it cost I think twenty dollars a month to run versus if we wanted to launch an app, it would have been tens of thousands of dollars on day one. Right. So, were you how far into the business were you thinking um, early on? Like, did you have a monetization strategy in place? Like, did you know like we need to hit an X amount, a number of subscribers, but and then perhaps we could start advertising, or like, or were you were you just trying to get content out there at the time and not really thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, in the early days, we were not thinking about monetizing it. Even when we went full-time on the business, we knew that we had the ability to monetize. We had gotten enough data points, but it was more of a feel. It was like a feel of, if we get to 100,000 subscribers, we think it could be a you know meaningful enough business. But we didn't really know what meaningful meant, and we didn't know how long it would take to get to 100,000 subscribers. So honestly, we were very much like shooting from the hip 
and operating on feel in the early days? And it's yeah. an interesting question because I I think you know in retrospect uh, it's it's interesting to think about why did we not monetize the business earlier? Like I think we made our we we advertised for the first time when we had seventy five thousand subscribers. Why did we do it earlier? Because now there are people who have newsletters who uh, run ads in their newsletters with far fewer subscribers. Like I see people who are you know making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year on advertising and they have 25 to 40,000 subscribers. But I think it's also about just how newsletters are kind of having a moment. Uh, they're in renaissance. And at the time yeah. that didn't exist. And so we didn't think there was like a shot in hell that we would actually be able to make money with that small of an audience. Right. You like, you almost have to like validate the model. And then once it's validated, then like, it's kind of like, well, this is a new advertising, uh, you know, revenue stream or uh, avenue for, for for companies, but uh, so I guess when you have that meeting with Austin um, and you're debating quitting, and you obviously don't uh, have a monetization you know uh, model in place, what was kind of going through your head? I mean, like were you were you like scared to death at all of like what's going to happen here? Like you know, um, had you saved up money? Like did you feel comfortable taking the leap? Obviously, you ended up doing it, but what was kind of going through your head at the time? Yeah, so I wouldn't say it definitely didn't feel comfortable. It definitely wasn't like a an overnight thing. I think for eight months straight, I left work every day feeling anxious and depleted. Whereas like this sucks. I don't feel like I'm doing a great job at work. I find morning brew far more exciting. I don't know what to do. That was that was really the question I asked myself for months. And at some point, the way that I went through this process or the way that I tried to simplify it is I really thought about it in terms of like, again, opportunity costs. And I was like, okay, so I know that I have to pick one of these because I can't, I cannot go on feeling this feeling of dilution where I'm doing a shitty job at work because I'm not spending all of my time uh, on Morgan Stanley. And I also wasn't spending all of my time on morning brew. So I didn't feel like I was giving enough time or resources to grow the business. So I knew that there was going to be a moment where I pick one of them. And when I thought about picking one of them, I basically said, look, I love what I'm doing with Morning Brew. It gives me the most energy in my day. (laughs) The three hours when I'm supposed to be just like chilling on my couch after a long day, that's when I have my most energy. And and also, I, I wouldn't be able to help the feeling if someone succeeds in making business content better for our generation just simply because they decide to put the time and the work into it. And so then Mm -hmm. when I was like, I really want to make this happen, then I thought about it in terms of like worst case. And I was like, if I decide to go do morning brew full time, what is the worst case scenario? And I went through like all the, the, the layers. I was like, the worst case scenario is that morning brew fails six months from now and I'm out of a job. And if I'm out of a job, what happens? And I was basically like, well, one, maybe I can go back to Morgan Stanley. Maybe I haven't burned every bridge. And they think like, you know, getting a bit of an entrepreneurial experience will actually be helpful in my role. Um, I was like, okay, but maybe let's just assume I burn every bridge. That's not an option. Option two is like maybe a good business school story about starting a business, all the learnings through failure uh, of building that business. I was like, okay, maybe everyone started a business who applies to business school and that's not going to be a differentiator. Let's assume that doesn't work. Third option is maybe there are other people that I've met in the New York City startup ecosystem who I can now go start a business with or join their company as an early employee. And I went through all these layers. And at some point, 
when I got enough layers deep, I was just like, if, if all of this fails and I don't have a job on the other end, it, it really is, I think, a function of Alex not properly networking, being curious, and making things happen for himself as much as mm-hmm. it is like morning brew being the reason for that. And so ultimately, after after going through all those downsides, you know, that's where I was like, okay, it, it is worth taking the risk. And by the way, just like I think the lingering thing, which we talked about earlier, is like after losing my dad, no, no worst case scenario seemed that bad. Right. Like, right. No, like I, I was just like, okay, if I, if morning brew doesn't work out and this fails, I'm just going to figure it out. Like it, it, it's, it's that simple. I'm going to figure yeah, it, it out. It puts that and, into perspective of like, what, what is the worst that could happen if, if, if it doesn't exactly. work out. Right. And it, and it and wasn't so bad. Kind of go, exactly. And going back to what we were talking about earlier about like the whole validation thing, like were you, did you, besides the, of the fact that it's, you know, it sounds like your subscriber count was growing and more and more people were consuming the content were you sort of getting any other sort of validating factors from your audience that kind of showed you that there is like, you know, a, a, a big chance that this thing does work out that, you know, at least gave you a little bit of comfort, you know, leaving, um, even though you yeah. loved this thing and you, you were seeing some growth, were there other, you know, signs? I think the, the most promising thing to us was just the engagement of the audience. It wasn't the fact that we had 30,000 subscribers. It was that we have 30,000 subscribers. We hadn't spent a dollar on paid marketing, which means we were growing completely organically through word of mouth. Our open rate at the time on our newsletter was around 50%. You know, Just for context, the average industry open rate is like 20%. So at the time, we were uh, two and a half times uh, higher than the industry average. We had people we had dozens of people writing into the inbox every day. And so it, it just felt, we, we had never built a product before, but it felt like hyper-engagement. It felt like people had established a habit around this. It felt like they felt like they were a member of the Morning Brew community. They were writing in. They were telling their family and friends about it. We didn't have a way to track it at the time because we didn't have a referral program. But the fact that we were just growing and not staying stagnant or going down in subscribers as as people unsubscribed was a really promising sign. Yeah. And for those who haven't you know who haven't uh, seen a morning boo newsletter, I definitely recommend signing up, but like it's it's such a it's such like a I don't know, it's such it's so consumable, right? Compared to like a, a newspaper or some you know traditional kind of way you consume like business news. Um it's so it's so easy to consume and so what was that you think the reason for the, the kind of the early growth or like, I mean, how, why did you think that you guys had such a great pulse on what was happening and, 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 and how to put it together in a consumable format? Like where did that all kind of come from? Uh, I, I think it was a, I think it was a function of us just being our own customer. I think the fact that uh, Austin and I had talked to students who shared their frustration with the wall street journal um, I think we were perfectly positioned to create something that would disrupt business news because one, we didn't come from media. So we didn't have these preconceived notions of how things should be done. At the same time, we were our target reader. We had been told by other people in this target audience that they didn't love what was out there. And we just, our North Star always from the beginning was create a product that we love. So that's why like, I'm always incredibly impressed by founders who build companies for audiences where they are not the audience 
especially like for B2B companies where they're not the audience. Because for us, Austin and I were like, you know, patient zero for our newsletter. And so we just created what we wanted to read. And what we wanted to read was business content that didn't take itself too seriously, that perfectly married entertainment and information, and also didn't just talk about talk about the most important timely news, but also had like business adjacent content that was just interesting stuff for us to know. And no existing publication provided something with that experience. Right. Um, Alex, obviously Morning Brew has grown from not just being one newsletter now, but it has several. It has retail brew, marketing brew, tech emerging brew. tech brew. The, I think the at one point you guys had the election version during the elections. If I'm missing any, then I apologize. Uh, and I subscribe to, I think, it, I, I, I had at one point subscribed to all of them, but then I religiously read Morning Brew and Retail Brew. And so just to keep my inbox clean, yeah. I keep those around. Um, you know, as the founder, as the leader of this company, Talk to us a little bit about scale. Talk to us about how you go from 30, 40,000 customers or, you know, subscribers to, you know, multiple newsletters. And at this point, millions of subscribers. I mean, obviously that's a process. It doesn't happen overnight, but what are some of the things that you and the team had to do to get there? Yeah. I mean, I think what it was, was for a number of years being extremely disciplined and focused, you know. Austin and I have thought of every possible way that we could engage the modern business leader, like in video, in podcasting, in social, in newsletter, whether it relates to news, industry-specific, function-specific, related to money, personal finance, investing, career, uh, lifestyle, leisure. We've thought about it all, and I think the biggest unlock was restraint, was just doing one thing exceptionally well. So it's like from 2015 to the beginning of 2019, we only had one product. And around that one product, we had three steps and that was it. Write great content, get the right audience in front of that great content, and sell advertisers why they should get in front of that great audience within our great content. That was it. Mm -hmm. And all we did from 2015 to 2019 was make sure those steps were complete. And our view was if we could complete those steps, we'd have a best-in-class newsletter for the modern business leader. We'd have a ton of modern business leaders who had been had built daily habit around the newsletter. And we'd have brands chomping at the bit to advertise with our newsletter because what they would realize for themselves is if that if they want to get in front of the you know low 30-something-year-old who is working and living in a large coastal city, who's making six figures a year, who has major life decisions coming up like marriage, vacation, investing, etc. There's no better place to get that engaged of an audience. And so as we thought about when we raised a little bit of money, when we hired people, when we reinvested money in the business, every decision we made was basically one hiring more people to be tasked with one of these three steps in the cycle or two spending money on paid marketing to make the cycle spin faster. And so I think mm-hmm. what allowed us to do anything else, retail brew, emerging tech brew, marketing brew, business casual, founders journal, sidekick, was literally just doing one thing, not listening to noise and keeping blinders on for four years straight. Yeah. And I want to kind of talk about just in general, like creating a media business 
um, and especially one that has like some sort of publication or news component and, and, and kind of the time and era when you guys started this, I mean, that was kind of, you know, with the elections and everything, like we saw this whole shift uh, and this narrative about like fake news and a lot of these like, you know, bigger publications that have been around for, I don't know, centuries, it feels like, um, ha- you know, we're kind of going through like tough times because you know sometimes they came out with an article that was then debunked as fake or you know you know false uh or inaccurate and so was that ever like uh a concern or challenge for you guys where it's like it feels like it's so easy to it's kind of one of those things where it's like you can do all this work and build this great reputation then overnight one like article or one thing can just like totally crush you like was that ever something that you guys were like totally heads-on focused on trying to make sure that at least from the content that you were putting out, like you were, I don't know, um, like maybe, I don't know, like how, what process, what that process looks like, but how, how was it for you guys? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing was we, we made sure very early on how important uh, it was to provide factual and correct information and never allowing tone, voice, wit, entertainment to uh to muddle the actual information that we're serving to the audience i think things that naturally made that easier is we're writing a newsletter so stories are 150 to 350 words in nature the less space honestly the less room to mess that up um i also think because we weren't doing original reporting we were doing uh curating and remixing the focus of our reader's time wasn't checking on like the validity of their sources. Like if you were a journalist, you'd spend a lot of time checking on what your sources told you. And if that's correct for us, it was looking at the eight articles that had been written about, you know, uh, Tesla's most recent production numbers and making sure that the stats and the facts we were referencing have been validated by more than just one or two sources. So I think Mm. that was a big thing. I think the other thing is it's just about incentive. We're not incentivized like um, you know, like a lot of media companies to have to drive as many eyeballs as humanly possible in order to make money. Like our incentive is to get people as many people as possible to opt into that newsletter and then keep those people so we don't churn people, which means continuing to deliver great content. You know, the relationship starts with the subscribe, but if we at all lose people's trust, they will unsubscribe and we will stop growing. And then we will not be able to monetize the business. So it's our prerogative also to just deliver the best, most factual content over the long term. Otherwise, our model doesn't work. Right. And from a core like advantage standpoint, you know, we talked about how at the time there weren't as many newsletter businesses. And now it seems like, you know, like as Posh said, like people have individual newsletters and like Substacks, and you can subscribe to this and that. And, you know, whether it's news or just content. And so what do you think is the reason why, for example, like Morning Brew has stood the test of time and just like, you know, is it just because, is it like only because it's like a not first mover, but like early mover advantage? Obviously it's not because, you know, you have to continuously put out good content or people will just, you know, unsubscribe. It's, it's easy to unsubscribe. And so how do you, uh, I mean, what can you attribute that to? I think one, I think we are early. Uh, two, I think honestly, persistence has been like persistence is in a moat, right? But persistence I think has, we've used it to our advantage because I think a lot of people start writing newsletters. They don't realize what they've gotten themselves into. 
they realize it's really hard and then they don't keep doing it. You know, we've written, uh, I don't know, I'm just going to go like take a wild guess with calculations here, but like we've written, you know, 1500 newsletters each, let's say with 300 word, 3000 words, that's 4.5 million words. We've sent out over a billion emails. It's like, it is a grind to crank out content every day for six yeah. years. Um, and also, when I think about where newsletters live on the audience pyramid, the very top of the pyramid is rented audience, right? That is where it is easiest to build audience. And that is building audience on the back of someone else's audience, meaning on a social platform or a video platform, right? Building audience happens fastest on Twitter, Instagram, you know, YouTube, et cetera because they have massive built-in audiences, but the cost of doing business there is you don't truly own your audience. The platform owns your audience. The second layer is, one layer down is owned audience. And the benefit of owned audience is like you truly own the relationship. Like we have our reader, our 3 million readers email addresses. We can do whatever we want with those email addresses as long as they give us permission. And Google Gmail cannot take away those email addresses from us. And we can guarantee that every time we email one of those 3 million people, it will likely be delivered into their inbox versus if you're posting on, you know, you're tweeting on Twitter or posting on Facebook, some small percentage of your audience will actually see it. That all said, that's the benefit of an owned audience. The downside or the tough part about an owned audience is it takes a lot of time to build up because it doesn't have the same platform effect or virality built into it, like building an audience on Twitter, right? You, you, Like if we write a great newsletter, it is going to be, we're not going to just have the chance of having 3 billion people on the internet see it because it's not being done within a social platforms environment. What that means is it's really hard to build up an email audience, which means you need to do it like little by little, brick by brick for years on end. Um, so that's, yeah. that's that. And then I would say the other thing is I do think there's like a critical mass to it where once you've built a habit, there is some sort of lock-in of it, it, even if someone was to come out with a, a, a newsletter tomorrow, like burning moo, it would have to be significantly better for someone to be like, okay, I've read this for the last, you know, 1300 days. I'm just going to unsubscribe today and go check out burning moo. Yeah. Alex, I'm curious, you know, in the five, six years that you guys have been doing this, what has been one of the most difficult times? I mean, just has there been a moment, whether it was a day, an hour, a decision, a reaction, whatever the case may have been, where you said, fuck, this is not going to be good? Um, so what I would say is I think the hardest moment uh, was when we sold the business. In the sense that it's been a, a a great outcome and a great partnership with uh, with Insider and with Axel Springer, but I think mentally it was really difficult. One is like working on a deal for a long period of time is like a full time job in itself, um, and that's time you're not spending obviously building the business. The second is, you know, we were a really young company, had a lot of people who had never worked in startups before. Uh, the reactions by employees kind of were all across the board because I think anytime something big like that happens, 
there's you know a significant amount of money involved. There's uncertainty involved. People react in different ways. I, I found that to be uh, you know really anxiety provoking because we want to do as much as possible to to do the best possible thing for our employees. Um, and also, there was just always the thing in the back of your head of like, should you do the deal? Should you not do the deal? Should you do the deal? Should you not do the, do the deal? And, you, and like with any big decision, like when you hire an employee or when you decide to quit your job and go full time. You never know at the time if it's the right decision. All you can do is try to think about all of the trade-offs of the decision you're making. So I'd actually say right. everything around the deal, it was the hardest time emotionally because of not knowing if it was the right decision at the time, um, navigating conversations with early employees who were nervous, anxious, scared. Um, and yeah, and, and, and I think... Uh, Obviously, we're in a place that we feel really good now about the business. But yeah, that, I would say that it was the the highest level of anxiety I've had in the business. And speaking of that decision, I, um, that is definitely something that a lot of founders and entrepreneurs at some point may or will find themselves in. I mean, it's not like super uncommon to be in a situation where you know maybe you've gotten approached by someone who wants to acquire you, or you're you're trying to actively sell the business um, for whatever reason. Like, and so in your in your experience. You know, in, when you're in that position as a leader, as a, the CEO of a company, obviously you don't want to, you know, it, you want to kind of keep it a little to yourself or like, you know, small circle just so if it gets out, it's not like misinterpreted or, you know, like it ruins morale or whatever for the company, right? It's like you want to make sure that it's done in the right way. And so how do you how do you go about that process? I mean, did, did you have people that you, you know, leaned on for advice? Like were they friends or like mentors or colleagues like how did you go through that process yeah i mean there there were definitely people we spoke to but even people who have been through acquisitions everyone has like you know comes in different shapes and sizes and flavors and um you know and i think one of the learnings has been that Austin and I don't have to do everything ourselves and we can lean on people more. And I think that's something as I continue to grow that I want to make sure I'm doing. Honestly, a lot of these things that we've gone through, Austin and I have just kind of handled on our own, like talk through together ad nauseum, the two of us. Um, and so, yeah, I think every consideration you're talking about were things we thought through. When should we tell the team? What it, What is the best way to tell the team such that we're being transparent, but we're not setting incorrect expectations. Like, how do we do it early enough when people are given a heads up, but not too early in case a deal doesn't go through? Like, it and there, there's no, there's, there's always trade offs around, and and it never felt like a great answer. But I, I would say honestly, Austin and I, just as partners, talked about it constantly. Like when the deal was going on, we were spending hours every day talking through what we should do, how we should talk about it, what the timing was. And it was exhausting. Um, but I actually would say like for most of the business, even when we were raising money or the next product to go into, Austin and I very much like leveraged our own intuition and discussion to decide what the game plan was. And I actually think as the business has grown and we're now you know encroaching on 100 people, we have a built out senior leadership team. I actually think that's changing a lot. We're, we're more than ever before leaning on people who have spent, you know, eight to 15 years in industry doing the very specific thing we hired them for to tell us what the best thing is to do. 
you know, you talk about people being all over the place with the decision of selling. Um, were there folks that ended up perhaps even leaving the company as a result of that? And what was that like for you as the founder and leader of this organization to see people that were, you know, leaving this baby essentially that you had birthed? Yeah. So I don't think there's anyone who left literally because of the deal. I think there are people who left and the deal was one of a number of things that kind of pushed them over the edge to decide to leave. I mean, one, it's very difficult. I, I know some people don't take things personally, but I take it personally. Anytime someone leaves the business, I take it as like a personal failure. Um, and, and that's not necessarily the best way to think about things because a lot of times someone leaving the business and attrition in the business can be a very healthy thing. Um, but my biggest learning also is that I think le- it's less about the deal also. It's, or it's less about the deal. It's more about as a business enters different phases. So, you know, I, I always reference the, these stages of business that uh, Ben Sun from Primary Ventures talks about, where it's, uh, it goes family, tribe, village, city. And I mm-hmm. think as Morning Brew went from, family to tribe um it it becomes very difficult the the business fundamentally changes everything about it and i think that is one of the hardest points in time for an early employee is when a business switches from family to tribe how to feel still feel confident about your place within the business because things that happen include you know you went from knowing every detail about the business and wearing 15 different hats uh, and being a Swiss army knife to you go to being a kitchen knife, not a Swiss army knife. And you go to not knowing everything about the business, just knowing what's like most important and relevant. And you go to uh, not wearing 15 hats, wearing two hats. And I think that can be really tough for early employees, right? Because early employees are used to constant exposure to the founders, constantly knowing literally what right. like the, the financials of the business look like. And it can either be a great thing or, or a bad thing, right? Some early employees will not like that because they like having that early exposure, which is totally understandable. Some early employees will see now, oh, the pie is way, way bigger. This company is way bigger. And while I'm more focused, I'm spending my time more focused on, uh, on part of a company, a company that is, you know, magna- uh, orders of magnitude larger than it was a year ago. And I think that right. transition is very difficult for a lot of early employees at early stage companies. Yeah. And a lot of times you see it, I mean, you see it like as businesses go from stage to stage, you know, there is attrition, there is a lot of turnover um, for multiple reasons. Some could be like employees leaving because they don't feel like, you know, what it's, it's what they signed up for anymore. And like, they like that early kind of stage feeling and they're, you know, they're not as much of a late stage type of person um, or, you know, the business is like dealing with financials and has to like lay people off. Unfortunately, like there's so many reasons that happens, but it just seems like the skill set and the type of person and the characteristics of, you know, being able to make an early stage business work is not always, you know, the same as making a late stage business work or like a more mature business, especially as a founder and CEO. I mean, you know, the team in general, but as a founder and CEO, like you see it so much that someone who started the business at some point is not the best person to lead the company. And oftentimes, you know, they might know it or they might not know it and they might hire a CEO and kind of, you know, just kind of stand back a little bit and kind of lead from behind or 
what have you. It'd be different in any business. So if, I guess for you, like at this point, um, do you still see yourself kind of leading the company for the foreseeable future and, and kind of, you know, into the city phase or, um, or are you still just, you know, trying to take it day by day and, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, the short answer is yes, I do. But also I think it is really about taking it not necessarily day by day, but you know, quarter by quarter, because I think one of the, one of the most important things for any founder um, is to have a self-awareness about what they're great at, to have a self-awareness around what gives them energy and to understand what are the biggest needs of the business. And so I think it, to me, what I'm just always thinking about is how can I, how can I, if I list down the things that give me the most energy and the things that are my superpowers, what the business most requires right now, um, and what things I can add val- the, the, the most high leverage value, what do those things look like? So like that is where I focus my time is what about what I like is most high leverage and most important to the business right now. And that's what I revisit every quarter. Um, and I, you know, I continue to see, uh, really high leverage things for me to do to add high, add value to the business. But I think it is the prerogative of any founder or of any CEO to continue to ask that question. And if at any point that the answer is no, well, then it's worth having a conversation about it just to keep yourself intellectually honest and make sure you're doing what's best to grow the business. Mm-hmm. And you're still such a young guy. Like, I guess outside of Morning Brew, like, what are some of your other interests or passions or things that you're kind of curious about that you could see yourself in the future doing something with, you know, in, the, in that realm? Yeah, I mean, look, I I think I don't know I know that I'm interested in a lot of things, but I don't know anything nearly as well as running a digital media company. So I I, I think, you know, to say, oh, you know, after after morning brew, I'm gonna run, you know, a a genomics company. It's like not gonna that's not how it's gonna okay. go down. I think I think there are areas that I definitely have a lot of interest, right? Like I have a lot of interest around better understanding blockchain technology and understanding the implication of blockchain technology on the creator economy. I think the creator economy is something I'm fascinated by. Um, and I think is just in day one of individuals having the tools and having the resources to basically be solopreneurs. Um, and when I think of creator economy, I don't just think of, you know, you, you guys being podcasters and making money from podcasting. I also think of people who have niche consulting businesses, niche SaaS businesses, people who decide to be executive coaches or personal trainers. Those are creators just in a, a different manifestation of the word. So I'd say my biggest interest right now is in the creator economy, but I'm sure also that will continue to fan out as I learn about more corners of the internet that people, you know, point me in the direction of. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I mean, like, uh, just to kind of wrap things up, but on that point, like, do you see a, a functioning future, a functioning society where it's kind of like every every person's on, on their own, um, perhaps collaborating on projects, but like, it's not the traditional kind of top-down organizational structure of like a business, but more so kind of solopreneur creators because that i i mean i that is the future we're going into obviously and and as more technology comes out as more things are automated and artificial intelligence and robots and things kind of you know take like some of these mundane 
tasks that maybe humans were never even meant to do like off of our plate and we could be more creative and kind of, you know, you know, uh, flex that muscle. But from a functioning standpoint, how do you see, how do you see that working? Um, yeah. Like, is there going to be a time where every person is an individual contributor? Honestly, honestly, I'm not smart enough to answer that question. <laughs> like, like I, I think it's a fun thing to think about, but at least yeah. I don't have, I don't think I don't, I, I don't think I have the knowledge or the tools yet to be able to answer that confidently with a straight face. I do think what has happened is there's been this huge shift in no code, in content creation tools that have set the foundation for people who want to create products by themselves with more leverage than ever before that exists. I think now where I see a lot of what I see a few pain points in kind of the, the life cycle of creators that are going to need solving. One is at the very beginning of a creator's life cycle, which is deciding to become a creator. I think a lot of people are going to have a hard time reconciling leaving their job that pays them $75,000 a year, whatever it is, to be a creator and make $0. Who? How is that going to be bridged, that gap? That's one. The second is the creator who has built up some audience but doesn't have business savvy, doesn't know how to start monetizing themselves. I think you have... There, there are already some things out there that allow creators to do to to figure that out themselves, which is like you know programmatic advertising through YouTube, uh, through Facebook, etc. But it's still not super easy for people who are creative but not necessarily like business focused yeah. and entrepreneurial. And then I think you have the third part of the life cycle of a creator, a creator who's really made it. They have a meaningful business. They think they want it to be bigger than just them. They want it to actually be a business. How to do that? Totally different way of thinking. And so where mm-hmm. I'm interested in thinking about is those three spots in the life cycle of the creator, where is there the most uh, value to unlock in the future of the creator economy and the impact that has on the economy overall? Mm-hmm. Alex, are you still a you know reader or customer of Morning Brew? I mean, do you still read it on a daily basis? Yeah. I So I read Morning Brew every day. Um, I try to read our... Uh, B2B newsletters as much as possible. Uh, those come out uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I, I'm not able to read every single issue. It's just, it's not possible. It's too much. And listen yeah. to Business Casual and record my own podcast and li- and read Sidekick, our newsletter. So I don't know what the percentage is, but I always want to feel like I'm consuming enough of our content to have a, to have a point of view on our content, which I still feel like I'm doing, but it will get infinitely harder as we create more and more content, which we're doing. Right. I mean, what's in store? Are you able to share with us what some of the things are that, you know, our listeners and, you know, morning brew subscribers can be looking forward to? Yeah. I mean, morning brew has already made this transition from newsletter business to media company, but I think putting this into hyperdrive is where we're focused. What does it mean to be a media company? It means to it means to serve a specific audience and a mission, uh, but there are many ways to serve that audience. So, like our audience is the modern business leader who I described earlier. That audience has specific needs. We are focused on on serving a few of those biggest needs, keeping them up to speed on what's going on in the world, making them better at their job and better decision makers in their job, 
making them smarter with their money um, and uh, helping them live a more fulfilled lifestyle. Those are four things. We're going to be creating content around those four needs. How will we be creating content around those four needs? Obviously, you know we already do with newsletter, but you will see, see significantly more effort put into things like long-form web content and multimedia, video, audio, social in the next six months. And you're, we're already starting to do that. Like if you go to Morning Brew on TikTok, you know, just in the last week, our TikTok has gone from 10,000 followers to 19,000 followers, I believe. My podcast, Founders Journal, is now like actually becoming a brand within the business. And we recently hired um, editors and writers to focus on things like personal finance, investing in web content at the business. Awesome. Speaking of modern business leaders, is there anyone that maybe you admire or just like know of that you know you found out they they consume the brew or just like consume your content where you're like oh shit that's awesome? Uh, well, I, I guess I'll consider him a modern business leader. The most recent was in in uh, literally uh, a newsletter story that came out yesterday today. Um, our executive editor interviewed Robert Downey Jr. Uh, oh, and man. he's. And he's now a reader of the brew, so it's cool to be able to say that Iron Man and Sherlock Holmes reads the brew every day. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Well, Alex, this has been uh, really fun, man. You know, uh, appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us, but also you know your wisdom and things you've learned and uh, are consuming and excited about as well. So uh, I think I speak for both of us when we say you know we can't wait to see what happens next with you and and Morning Brew and uh, yeah, man. It's been you fun. can't you can't see it right now, but I have three morning brew stickers or two morning brew stickers on love the it. back of my laptop. So <laughs> love it. Yeah. As we I've, launch I've, new franchises, we'll, and we have more swag for each. We'll I'll just keep sending them to you until your entire home laptop has been just in, 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 infested with uh, stickers and, and brew paraphernalia. Yeah. And you know, I was going to tell you, Alex, it's, it's I, I, Pat and I have both been subscribed to morning brew for years now. I'm sure you could check and verify that. Uh, but you know, one thing that I really enjoy about it is that I've never been the kind of person that's going to pick up a newspaper and read it and read the different things. And it's just a little difficult. And I don't, I don't love reading. I mean, I went to law school and I ended up not practicing law because I don't like reading and I don't like writing constantly. Uh, but other than that, law was perfect for you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but the morning brew and I, I specifically like retail brew the most. That's my favorite one. It's also the most, um, it's the most adjacent to my business and the most yep. uh, important to what we do on the commercial real estate side, at least. But b- regardless of that, it just makes it so easy to see what I want to read and what I don't want to read. You know, like there's sometimes I'll get the morning brew and I'll be like, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's interesting. And then I'll, I'll come back to it a few days later because I think that some of the content is evergreen. It's sure there's some stuff that are very, you know, to the day, but other things that are, you know, talking about the future of e-commerce or the future of the logistics business or the future of, you know, artificial, whatever the, right. The future stuff or, you know, how things are changing. Those are things that you could read forever. And it just makes you a lot more of a conversational person who can talk about things other than your job. Cause I think people get sick of talking about their work and what they focus on. Some people, but right. Some people, some people love it, but, but I think it's important these in this day and age to be very knowledgeable or to be at least, a little knowledgeable about a lot of things. And yep. I think that that's where the morning brew is a really big win for people is that whether they're at work or in, on a first date or, you know, with their friends, there's always something to talk about, right? If you're in the know about current events or even future technologies or businesses, et cetera, 
that makes you a smarter person. I think that that's what the morning brew really does is that it allows people to gain more insight and more knowledge in a shorter period of time. And then that person can decide if they want to delve deeper on a topic. And, you know, frankly, I've outreached to several people because I learned about a certain industry or a certain, um, you know, specific business from the morning brew or retail brew or emerging tech brew. Right. And I think it's a huge thing for people that are in sales or, you know, business development, et cetera, marketing. Totally. To read these newsletters like and i'm not trying to just pitch morning brew for you but truly if people use it the right way it can really help move their businesses forward yeah no uh obviously uh you're preaching to the choir but i totally agree um i think there's this concept of deep generalism which i believe a lot in which is the idea of uh knowing a good amount about a lot of things and i think morning mm-hmm. brew can be the entry point to that um and i think also um when you think about the job Morning Brew does, I think it is it it protects you or it offers you high upside and it it protects you from high downside. Meaning, high downside is joining a social conversation and uh, being caught off guard, not knowing about something major you should know about. That's an embarrassing experience that you, people don't want to experience. That's the the downside. It's protecting protecting from. The high upside it's allowing for is if you know the one or two things that other people don't know, you can you're viewed as the smartest person in the room, and people right. really care about social currency and social signaling. And Morning Brew right. offers that to people. Right, Alex. Do you think that there will be some sort of social component to Morning Brew or just to the brew generally uh, in the future, where the folks that are a part of this community can connect with one another? Because when I think about, and I, I remember I had tweeted about it the other day. It's like, I just wish that there was just a one social platform where I could do everything, right? Like post pictures, videos, tweet, yep. talk about, message people, like combining everything. Cause I'm just so sick of all the individual ones together. It's just too much to keep in touch with. But I think what Clubhouse has done really well is like do things around topics. Do you think that Morning Brew can eventually have that sort of social component where people can connect on topics that they've already read about? And share their opinions, share their thoughts, build things together, et cetera, and that it becomes beyond just a media company. I, I well, think I the, basically he's asking if Morning Brew is going to join the list of building a clubhouse competitor. <laughs> yeah, <kidding>. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, us, us, and LinkedIn on the uh, at the rear. Yeah, um, uh, I think the answer is yes, and I think we're actually already doing that. Um, I think Morning Brew, if you if you think about people's interests and knowledge as a T. Morning Brew covers the horizontal, right? It, it goes an inch deep and a mile wide. Everything else we're doing, I think, is more about going down the vertical, right? Retail, emerging tech, marketing, uh, personal finance, investing, um, even for my podcast, entrepreneurship and building. To me, all that's doing is it's further segmenting the top of funnel, which is Morning Brew's general business audience, into sub-communities. And then it becomes a very reasonable thing to say, how do we get these sub-communities to engage with each other? Because by the way, I think you'll have a far richer discussion when you in the retail brew community are talking about retail than if you're in a community of 3 million people that have 10 billion different interests that you're trying to connect on. Right. Yeah, totally. I 100% agree. Well, this has been great. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, uh, no, thanks for having me, guys. This has been awesome. Awesome.